a pistol is fired in St. Louis, Missouri. The sound, a monolith of expanding pressure, shatters the morning silence. The minds of 31 young men silently scream the same word, run. Each of their bodies yields to the quiet will of a molecule one million times smaller than a single cell as adrenaline binds to cognate receptors. Pulses quicken, pupils dilate. Calcium floods through ion channels like water over a spill gate as muscles contract. The year is 1904, and these 31 men are runners who've just begun the Olympic marathon, the third of the modern Olympiads. Unknown to all at the time, this race will not proceed as expected. On the many anomalies that will shape this unusual marathon, we begin with a simple human miscalculation. For reasons unknown to all, on this 90 degree day, the race organizers will only place a single water stop along the entire 24.8 mile course. By mile 20, more than half the competitors have dropped out. But not Thomas J. Hicks, a young brass worker from Cambridge, Massachusetts. Thomas has trained tirelessly for this moment. Nonetheless, by mile 14, his energy is waning. He slows to a walk and is preparing to abandon the race when his support team, seeing the plight of their flagging runner, comes to his aid. In an attempt to bolster his energy, they do what any good support team would logically do. They give him a shot of brandy, along with a mysterious white pill, slap him on the ass and send him on his way. Unfortunately, this ephemeral uplift is fleeting and his support team must continue to feed Thomas little white pills like Tic Tacs to a halitotic until, at last, three hours and 28 minutes after he started the race, Thomas Hicks quite literally collapses across the finish line in second place. But his disappointment is short-lived. Fred Lortz, the person who crossed the finish line first, had been disqualified. You see, it took Fred several miles to figure out what most normal human beings have a strong innate understanding of. Running is hard. At mile marker number nine, Fred excused himself from the race course, jumped in the back of a car, timed things out a bit, and rejoined the track during the last mile of the race and just strolled across the finish line with a saunter and careless ease that alerted the officials to his ruse. But Fred was not the only one using the spoils of early 20th century science to aid him. Thomas, our intrepid pill popper, who lay unconscious near the finish line near death, was not in this state because of exhaustion, dehydration, or because of the pint of Remy Martin he consumed during the race. He was dying because of the copious quantities of strychnine his team had fed him. And no, they were not trying to kill him in some sort of macabre, Agatha Christie-esque murder plot. They were trying to help him win the race, and, well... They might have done just that. Let's learn why. I don't feel so good. Welcome to the Poison Cast, a program dedicated to explaining the deadly science behind toxins, venoms, and chemicals. We travel deep inside the human body and investigate just how these fascinating and dangerous molecules kill you. My name is Scott Barnett, and I am a Ph.D. candidate in cellular and molecular pharmacology and physiology at the University of Nevada, Reno School of Medicine. And it bears mentioning that this episode would not exist without the brilliant work of one Laura Berg, who wrote much of the science found in this episode as part of her graduate coursework at the University of Montana. Thank you very much, Laura. So, strychnine. 
If you've listened to previous episodes of the show, you know that nature is pretty damn adept at finding ways to kill us. It doesn't do it with malice, or at least I hope not. That's a trait potentially unique to humans, but it is very effective nonetheless. The toxins and venoms produced by many plants and animals generally serve to help protect or feed the organism. This makes sense. Making toxins and venoms is very energy intensive. So generally speaking, they better serve some type of benefit to the plant or organism. If you're a plant, you may create fruit, another highly energy intensive endeavor, so that animals will consume and spread your seeds far and wide. This makes sense. But you don't want the animal grinding up and digesting all that DNA in the seed. One way to prevent that big, dumb bird or mammal from doing this is to make your seeds poisonous. A good example of this is ricin, which is found in the seed of the castor plant, and cyanide, which is inside apple seeds. And of course, as you've most likely guessed, this is true of strychnine as well. Strychnine comes from a tree common throughout Asia and in some parts of Australia called Strychnos nox vomica, which, and I love this, means vomit tree in Latin. Interestingly, vomit is... Not a very common side effect of the toxin, but hey, cool names have a way of sticking around. I'm looking at you, Scream Viper, aka Rattlesnake, so vomit tree it is. Speaking of sticking around, strychnine is a very old toxin, as in we've known about it for a long time. Not 1950s VX nerve agent old. The use of strychnine dates back to the earliest days of civilization in Asia as a poison uh, that was used against pests, ranging from rodents to large predators and sometimes even humans, as we're going to find out. So we know that strychnine comes from a seed. And if you stumble across the vomit tree while trekking around Asia during your gap year, it can most easily be identified by the fruit, which is about the size and color of an orange with a soft, white, generally unpleasant tasting pulp, which is a good thing because the pulp has small amounts of strychnine as well. The seeds, which contain our poison de jeu, when dried, look like miniature cow patties about the size of a half dollar. Fun fact, one I would not recommend you try, by the way, is that the seeds are generally only effective as a poison when they are crushed up and chewed before swallowing because of what we talked about before, their pericarp, which is that hard protective skin that may that many seeds have. Um, it is not digestible and will essentially shield you from, a brunt, from the brunt of the toxins. And, and yes, I said toxin, not poison, because it was produced by a plant. Remember, toxins and venoms are subclassifications of poisons, so I will use poison sometime to describe it. The former being produced by the plant or animal, the latter being injected by plants or animals. As I alluded to in the intro, strychnine was a very popular plot point in Agatha Christie novels. That being said, while accidental overdoses used to be frequent, murder by strychnine is not all that common, uh, with a few notable exceptions. If you want to go old school, uh, think of Alexander the Great. He was potentially murdered with strychnine infused in his wine. Not a worse way to go, I can imagine. At least you got some wine out of it. And another big one was Dr. Thomas, Thomas Cream, who was not a dermatologist, which is disappointing. But he killed at least eight people in the late 1800s, giving them strychnine as medicine, heavy quotes there, both in the U.S. and U.K. And for those of you who thought that mass homicides by our government was limited to gifts of small box infused blankets, prepare to be disappointed. A notable case of its use was in the mass homicide involving the Shasta Nation of California during the celebration following a peace treaty, peace treaty in 1851 when representatives of the United States allegedly served meat adulterated with strychnine, resulting in approximately 4,000 deaths. 
Jeez, how do we do this? Okay, but apart from the murderers and governments who tinker with strychnine, does it serve any other purpose? Well, yes. It's been used quite literally for centuries as rodent and pest control, with pest having a wide range of meaning, I suppose. For instance, strychnine has been used liberally as a coyote and wolf poison. The idea being that ranchers who don't want their sheep and cows eaten will wrap up an old piece of meat with strychnine, and well, you know what comes next. In fact, there's a fabulous book out there called Tracks by Robin Davidson. It's about a woman who trekked across Australia uh, in the outback on camels, which turns out to be spectacularly dangerous, you will learn, and strychnine plays an unfortunate role during her journey. No spoilers. I'll have a link in the show notes if you want to check out the book. But generally speaking, strychnine is largely used for rodents and fall into a class of poisons called vermicides, as in get damn vermits, vermits. Fear not, though. Marketing firms love a good challenge. And they really stepped to the plate when they decided to brand strychnine so that um, you don't think that the, think about the horrific manner in which you're killing an animal. They developed such cute and innocuous sounding gems as quick kill with K's instead of Q's. Gopher Gator, Rodex, and Pied Piper Mouse Seeds. So all horrible poisons that sound fun and light. Anywho, so strychnine, right? In its purified form, Strychnine appears as an odorless, bitter, alkaloid, crystalline powder. Just think white, clearish powder, right? Like hemlock or atropine or something. Fun fact, the bitter taste comes from strychnine binding to taste receptors in your tongue called TAS2R10 and TAS2R46, if that sort of thing excites you. So just how much strychnine would it take to kill you? Well, the average lethal dose in children is about 15 milligrams, and with adults, it's probably anywhere from 15 to 120, depending on your physiology. Now, we're talking baby aspirin size here. Pretty nasty. It's not the most dangerous substance we've discussed on the podcast, whatever that means. And, you know, people often want to know what is the most lethal or the most dangerous toxins and poisons. The shorter answer, the short answer is botulinum toxin, by the way. But really, once we get down to small pill size, heavy quotes with pill size, just little, for a lethal dose, does it really matter? They're all very, very dangerous. And strychnine certainly falls into that category. So what happens when you take strychnine? What, what is going on in your body? That's what we're here to learn about today. Well, let's pretend you're one of Dr. Cream's patients, right? You come to him for some joint stiffness, and he says, hey, I've got just the thing for you. You'll be right as rain in the morning. Gives you some pills and off you go home. At home, you have a nice glass of wine to relax. You toss back a couple of the pills from Dr. Cream, who had excellent bedside manner, by the way. Really nice man, you know, and you you begin to prepare your dinner as you would typically do. About 15 minutes later, the strychnine is passively transported across the lumen of the small intestine where it rapidly enters the bloodstream. And there, it loosely binds with plasma proteins. These plasma proteins hold on and transport the strychnine to specialty neurons, not in your brain, but in your spinal cord, called Renshaw cells. To understand what happens next, we have to think about how your brain tells your muscles to contract. When you get the idea to flex a muscle, your brain needs to send that signal all the way down your spinal column out to the muscle itself. It does this in two parts. The neurons that connect directly to your brain are called upper motor neurons, and they stretch all the way down into your spinal column. From here, those upper motor neurons hand off the signal to lower motor neurons, which connect to the cell, right? Two parts there. 
In the spinal cord, where the upper and lower neurons meet, is where Renshaw cells live. This is where the strychnine enters the story. You see, Renshaw cells act like gatekeepers between the upper motor neurons and the lower motor neurons. They help regulate the signal from your brain before it gets passed along to the muscle. In other words, it helps fine-tune the signal to give you better fine motor control of your muscles. Renshaw cells are inhibitory. That means they stop the muscle from contracting. They limit the signal from the brain to the muscle. The class, uh, the classic example of how Renshaw cells and other interneurons work is when you touch a hot stove. Your body reacts without your brain doing anything at all, right? The sensory neurons in your hand send a signal to your spinal cord, and those sensory neurons are yelling, move your hand now. Rather than waste all the time sending the move your hand signal up to your brain, which is relatively far away and your neurons can only send signals at about 20 meters a second, the interneurons in your spine do something interesting. Excitatory interneurons, not the inhibitory Renshaw neurons, the other class, the excitatory interneurons, shoot back a signal to your bicep saying contract without your brain doing anything at all. And the inhibitory interneurons, the Renshaw cells, tell your tricep to relax. The result is you move your hand away from the hot stove. Your bicep is contracting, your triceps are relaxing, and boom, your hand moves away in rapid order. If you've ever touched a hot flame or got poked by a needle or tripped on a stair, you know just how fast and effective these cells can do their jobs. So when Mr. Strychnine shows up to the party, he binds to these Renshaw cells and essentially turns them off. What does this actually mean, though, for you? Well, let's go back to Dr. Krim's patient who took the magic pills 15 minutes ago. The strychnine is beginning to co-mingle with her Renshaw cells. And guess what? She feels great. What? Yeah. The initial symptoms of strychnine poisoning include a nice boost of energy, heightened awareness and muscle tension. You're alert, even a bit fidgety. You see... With only partial inhibition of the Renshaw cells, especially at low doses, your muscles are on a bit of a hair trigger, and they're not passing along all of that full complement of signals that you normally would to your lower muscular neurons, telling them not to contract. It's like having a bit of coffee, and, and you're, you're, you're just a little bit more active. But that's where the fun train comes to a screeching halt. As the strychnine poisoning progresses, as the, the plasma concentration increases, things go from good to really bad. Symptoms include tachycardia, which is rapid heartbeat. You get rapid breathing. You get cyanosis, which literally means blue color. You get diaphoresis, which is sweating. You get trismus, which is lockjaw. You also get a really nasty one called rhesus sardonicus, which is an unfortunate spasm of the facial muscles, and it makes you look like someone held a gun to your head and said, I want you to make a face that convinces me you are having the happiest time of your life. Think Jim Carrey in the mask. That's the kind of face you're making. Uh, let's see. What other horrible things happen? Oh, Opisthotonus, which I'm sure I'm mispronouncing here. This is dramatic spasm of the back muscle. This causes arching of the back and neck. And the artwork from this week's show, if you look at that, is a painting by Sir Charles Bell illustrating just this. And as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, in rare cases, the affected person may experience nausea or vomiting. I don't know if these are side effects of you realizing that you're dying. But uh, in any case, not that common. So in a nutshell, strychnine paralyzes the victim and causes death by respiratory failure. The inhibited Renshaw cells prevent the diaphragm from relaxing, which is basically like taking a deep breath and not being able to exhale. And by the way, 
unlike the more nasty chemicals we've discussed, like VH ner- VX nerve agent, there is absolutely no antidote for strychnine. It takes about 12 hours for your liver to remove the toxins from your system using enzymes. And your only option is to wait it out. I, I imagine they might try swapping out your blood if things are, aren't too dire yet, but I'm not a clinician, so I don't know about that. I also think that they could probably create an antibody therapy that binds, strychn- binds to strychnine and prevents it from interacting with those Renshaw cells, but I don't know. There's probably not a big market for it, and it's expensive to make these, so, uh, so, so it probably just hasn't happened. But that all leads us to our next question, which is, why in the holy hell would anyone take this on purpose? Well, a long time ago, a very famous individual called Paracelsus famously said, the dose makes the poison. And this is kind of one of the, the uh, overarching themes in pharmacology, the dose makes the poison. There is a phenomenon in pharmacology, pharmacology called hormesis, which is a controversial um, concept and describes any process in a cell or organism that exhibits a biphasic response to exposure in increasing concentrations of the substance, which is kind of a weird way of saying it. A better way to say it is that a little bit of a poison or drug may potentially have the opposite effects in the cell of a high dose, presumably because the cell is responding to the poison or toxin trying to get rid of it. Um, But in larger doses, that this will damage or kill the cell. Hormesis is a highly contentious topic and some real shady data is out there to support it. So the people who've taken this idea to the furthest extent, uh, kind of into cuckoo land, are known as homeopathists. Uh, Sorry if you like it. You're probably not listening to the show anyways. But the idea behind homeopathy being uh, that clinically insignificant insignificant amounts of a drug, uh, we're talking drugs that have been diluted millions of times to the point where they can't even be measured by uh, instruments. The idea is that these drugs still have an effect on the body. In fact, you can even buy strychnine, or as they uh, call it to make it sound less scary, Nux Vomica, on Amazon in comically diluted amounts. Uh, and I'll, You can see it in the show notes. The reason they don't have to clear this with the FDA, and, and you probably guessed it by now, is that you are essentially buying water. Uh, I'm not going to spend any more time explaining why this is wrong on so many different scientific levels, but it's a fascinating topic, and there's a link in the show notes to science-based medicine that discusses homeopathy, and you should check it out if that sort of thing excites you. Okay. That was a bit of a tangent. So what then is the strychnine doing in these low doses? We know it's doing something. We've already mentioned that the initial effects of partial inhibition of the Renshaw cells is a heightened awareness of muscle tension. That's what Thomas Hicks hat did, right? And many other people, even modern day athletes, have taken low doses of strychnine. It's uh, illegal now to take it. You, know, you, you will be kicked out of races if you take it now. But the toxin basically has set those muscles on a hair trigger. And well, this is not necessarily a bad thing if you're an athlete or you have muscle fatigue or something. The problem is that the tipping point where the toxin does its job too well and your muscles seizing up so that you can't breathe is very fine. A a good therapeutic, uh, an ideal therapeutic, will be very effective at low doses and will not be toxic until very high doses. You want a drug to have a lot of runway to account for the variations in size, metabolism, genetics of the person you're giving the drug to. Strychnine is effective at low doses, but it quickly becomes lethal. So it's not a great candidate as a therapeutic. And as I said, strychnine wasn't some uh, taken as some kooky home remedy back you know, when bloodletting and horse-drawn carriages were in vogue. In the British Pharmaceutical Codex of 1934, Easton's syrup 
is described as a tonic containing quinine and, ster- uh, and strychnine and was sold until 1942 for malarial patients. Fun fact, quinine, which is the active ingredient in malarial treatments, is very bitter, uh, kind of like IPAs and anything else that people ingest for medical purposes or other reasons. Over time, people develop a taste for it. And as you know, quinine is also the primary ingredient in tonic water. The story goes that British adventurers in Africa would mix their quinine with quinine-based malarial prophylactics with some sort of gin. And because everything tastes better with gin, uh, well, now we have gin and tonic. So there you go. But back to the Eastons, right? The therapy for strychnine. For those that dislike the bitter flavor of the syrup, Easton tablets, which contain one milligram of strychnine, remember lethal dose is 15 to 100, um, they came in a variety of sugar-coated, attractive colors and textures that were delicious. And uh, as you can imagine, your children love to get into them too. And because 15 milligrams is a lethal dose for a child. You only need a handful of those pills. And unfortunately, a lot of children were killed by, uh, by strychnine poisoning. So uh, as a fa- matter of fact, for over half the 20th century, strychnine poisoning was the leading cause of death by poisoning in young children, primarily due to these tonics and colorful tablets being taken. It wasn't until the 1960s that the medical community began campaigning against the use of strychnine as a stimulant. And in the early 1970s, uh, they campaigned against it as medical use entirely due to the fatal cases of uh, strychnine poisoning. Razor's edge, as we talked before. During the 1980s, many pharmaceutical companies worldwide still produced a large amount of medically marketed remedies containing strychnine uh, for use from sedatives to vitamin supplements across the board here, right? So it's a bit strange, but uh, ultimately, you're really not going to find it. As a matter of fact, it's highly uh, controlled by the FDA now. And uh, and and unless you're trying to poison some rodents, uh, you're probably going to have a difficult time getting hold of it. So with that, I think we'll end part one of the show by revisiting the quote from uh, Paracelsus. The dose makes the poison. We've been riding that razor's edge between poison and therapy for as long as humans have been around. It may seem our to willfully ingest something that is used as a rat poison, but in reality, the only reason strychnine is still not used today as a therapy is because, well, we've got better, more effective drugs that do the same thing with less risk to the patient. And if you're feeling superior to those idiots who took strychnine, think about Coumadin, or as it's also called Warfin, uh, which is a potent rat poison, but is also commonly used as blood thinner to prevent strokes and other maladies. Uh, And then there's botulinum toxin, the most dangerous substance on the planet, gram for gram, but we happily paralyze our faces with it to look 10 years younger. So the list goes on and on, and these are just a couple of examples. So I guess what I'm trying to say is that the line between poison and therapy is very gray and diffuse and large. And that's one of the main, many reasons that pharmacology is so fascinating, why I've chose to, to investigate it, because it's just uh, pretty interesting how these drugs and poison interact in the body. Well, I hope you liked the show. And thanks again to Laura Berg for doing much of the heavy lifting for this episode. And keep that podcast a playing as we go into the full science nerd section of the show now on Strict 9. Please rate us on iTunes. Leave us a warm and fuzzy comment about the show. And uh, I think that's going to do it. Bye now. Part do. Hello, nerds. Thanks for sticking around. I thought for the second part of the show, we'd go into what is called in pharmacological circles uh, ADME or ADME. It stands for absorption, distribution, metabolism, and excretion. We look a little more closely about how this drug gets into you and what, what it's doing. 
I feel the need to say this one more time, but thank you so much to Laura Berg for helping out uh, as much as she did for part two. And a lot of this I've lifted straight from a paper she wrote. So, so thank you again, Laura. Okay, so absorption, we'll start there, right? Strychnine is generally introduced into the body orally or by inhalation or even potentially injection. It is a very bitter substance, so so unless it's coated in one of those sugary pills we talked about, you're going to be knowing you're taking something a little bit off there. It, it binds to and activates bitter taste receptors, this TAS2R910 and the TAS2R46, and strychnine is then rapidly absorbed in the gastrointestinal tract. It goes right through the lumen. It's a very small molecule, and, and it gets into your bloodstream. Distribution. Strychnine is transported by uh, the plasma uh, and erythrocytes, red blood cells. Due to the fact that they only bind lightly, strychnine leaves the bloodstream very quickly. It's got a very low binding affinity for those erythrocytes. Um, and approximately 50% of the ingested dose can enter the human tissue within five minutes. So you're, you're getting a very quick response to the drug here. A lot of it has to do with it's a small, easily soluble drug. In circulation, it quickly reaches those Renshaw cells we talked about, these inner, uh, inner neurons that control motor neuron inhibition. Renshaw cells, these are inhibitory inter, uh, interneurons, and they're found in the gray matter of the spinal cord and are associated in two ways with these alpha motor neurons, which are, which are a stimulating contraction of the muscle cell. They receive an excitatory collateral from the alpha neurons axon as they emerge from the motor root. And they are kind of kept informed because of this, you know, quotes on kept, inf kept informed on how vigorously that neuron is firing. They also send that inhibitory axon um, uh, to the inhibitory axon synapse to the body of the cell of the, of the alpha uh, neuron. Um, and this will help kind of keep this, uh, was it, this negative feedback system going there. These Renshaw cells have, high, have uh, glycine receptors that aid in the influx of chloride uh, into ions into the cell. Hence, that's why they're inhibitory. They hyperpolarize the membrane, preventing it from conducting an action potential. Renshaw cells are found throughout the central nervous system and spinal column. Strychnine binds to the cis loop of the inhibitory glycine receptor, preventing glycine from binding, because glycine is the, is the um, What's the word I'm looking for? A ligand that is going to bind to and activate this chloride channel. And so the strychnine binds to it and prevents the glycine from binding. And it causes a change in the local pH around the binding site. And voila, you're not going to get uh, you're not going to get chloride influx into the cell. This prevention of the motor neuron inhibition leads to convulsions and these hypersensitive symptoms here. Prevention of glycine binding also results in uncontrolled spasms of the diaphragm, which is going to lead to your death, right? Um, and that's a bad thing, <laughs> probably. Now, something I did not mention at all in part one is that strychnine is a very potent and selective antagonist, not just of glycine receptors, but it also inhibits muscle and neuronal nicotinic acetylcholine receptors not unlike atropine. And uh, we talked about that last week in the VX episode here. So at the end of the day, this is interesting though, that the, the, the strychnine poisoning leads to this competing signals. Uh, inhibition of the Renshaw cells leads to contraction of the muscle, but inhibition of acetylcholine receptor, uh, nicotinic receptors, leads to relaxation because you can't flood the cell with sodium and depolarize it. It's kind of like this, uh, like a speedball for muscles. If you're into the drug market, which aren't we all? That's a joke, by the way. Also, 
within a few minutes of ingestion, strychnine can be detected in the urine, which is interesting. Uh, in a person killed with strychnine, the highest concentrations are in the blood, in liver, in kidney, and as well as the stomach wall. This all makes sense as far as how the drug is being moved around the body. And as I said, the fatal dose is for an adult 50 to 100 milligrams-ish, and it takes about one to two hours for this to fully seize up your diaphragm before you die there. Metabolism. So it's in you. It's done its thing. How does your body get rid of it? Under ideal circumstances, the plasma half-life should be about 12 hours for strychnine. And it just does standard first order kinetics for that, um, for, for, for that half-life. Strychnine is metabolized by the liver using microsomal enzyme systems. And it uses NADPH and O2 to help metabolize it. These polar metabolites that are created from this uh, are actively removed from the body, primarily through kidneys and feces, though um, approximately a quarter of the strychnine is excreted unchanged through urine. So your, your kidneys are really working to get that out of your system. In a study using rats, uh, pre-treatment with intravenous phenobarbital at 90 mg per kg triggers improved metabolism of the strychnine by upregulating CYP2B enzymes, um, and it resulted in 0% mortality. So that's an interesting potential for a therapeutic, although you are giving someone phenobarbital, which is going to really cause them to relax. And I imagine they gave him phenobarbital because if I recall my pharmacology, that's going to cause a strong influx of, of, of uh, chlorides into the cells, and it's going to relax them. So we'll see. The pre-existing uh, expression levels of the CYP2B enzymes on the individual level may explain variations in the severity of symptoms and the fatality even at very high doses. You know, this is the genetic factor that comes into play when it comes to any time you give someone a drug. You don't know. They could have, uh, they could have these minor um, uh, changes to their genome, these could even be small SNPs that will cause the enzyme to behave very differently in the face of the drug. So the distribution of strychnine and its rapid metabolism is supported by post-mortem examination showing the highest concentrations in the liver and bile. So, so as we said a little bit earlier, a few minutes after ingestion, strychnine is going to start being excreted into the urine. Uh, anywhere from 10 to 50%, depending on what you look at, is how much of the strychnine that's going to be processed out through your urine, not through your liver, not through hepatic uh, enzymatic breakdown of the, of the, of the chemical here. And uh, this percentage excreted decreases with increasing dose so that your liver has to take a higher load the more, more you take of it. Removal of strychnine and its metabolites from the human body is potentially hindered by secondary uh, nephrotoxic effects. The constant excitation of motor neurons and reduced blood oxygenation saturation causes anaerobic respiration, resulting in lactic acidosis, and um, this can release uh, myoglobin into the circulation. The myoglobin, structurally similar to hemoglobin, is filtered through the circulation by the kidneys and, 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 and it um, precipitates into the renal tubes, causing obstruction. You know, all kinds of bad stuff happens because of this, uh, because, because of the, the myoglobin. So if you have taken a large dose, the only medical treatment available for strychnine poisoning is supportive care for symptoms, palliative care, uh, and the prevention of secondary tox uh, uh, toxicity, like we talked about the myoglobinuria. In the case of strychnine poisoning, respiratory assistance is with a ventilator is pretty much really important to do if you're having difficulty breathing, which you probably will. And um, additional measures that can be taken are based entirely on the current needs of the patient to protect against renal insufficiency or renal failure by the use of alkaline intravenous fluids to combat against this acidosis and renal tubal uh, blockage. 
If a patient presents for emergency medical intervention with no disclosure of strychnine exposure, a strychnine poisoning diagnosis is unlikely to occur because of the symptoms due to various other toxic exposures, microbial infections, and traumatic injury. If a strychnine diagnosis is to be made, it is time-consuming and requires fact action on the part of the medical team. Uh, They have to use gas uh, chromatography. mass spectrometry to figure out what poison is in you. Um, And in the case of individuals that choose not to disclose basically what's going on here, maybe because of a suicide attempt with strychnine, there's really nothing that can be done here. Um, Supportive care is all you got. Uh, Luckily for surviving patients, while strychnine's acute poisoning symptoms are severe, they do not tend to persi- uh, persist in human tissues. Your body will metabolize it out, and assuming you're, you didn't damage your, your liver or your kidneys too bad, you're probably going to be okay. There's also no evidence to suggest that it is a carcinogen or a tetranogenic, which is nice. However, strychnine poisoning can occasionally result in structural damage as a result of the uncontrolled muscular contractions uh, that we talked about before. So, so these spasms can really cause some serious damage to you. But that's um, that's it. And then we're going to end part two here. We have our, our admin taken care of. And I hope that was information. I hope so. Uh, check out the website if you want to know what we're going to talk about next time we come back, probably in a few weeks. Thank you for staying, staying subscribed. We all appreciate that very much. And uh, have a wonderful afternoon, everyone.